industrial, light, and magic. Magic. Hello, interwebs, and welcome to Close Up. I'm your co-host, Joe. And I'm Ryan. Industrial engineering, the stepping stones to greatness. Light, the building blocks of cinema. Combine the two and boom, magic. Light and Magic is a relatively new documentary series which premiered on Disney+. Plus. Full spoilers ahead for it, if you can spoil a documentary. Because, just real life. That's a good point, actually. How do you... <laughs> uh, sorry if you don't know... How do you spoil something that's happened? Sorry you don't know life. Anybody who's doesn't want to oh, know. Oh, man. No one cares but we're talking what happened a lot before about the them. year 2000. Especially people born after the year 2000. Shots fired. Exactly. We are Generation Z, though, so, you know, we're one of you. Boo. We're Zillennials. And that brings us to our close-up. So, let's talk about Light and Magic. This was a... Look, I don't watch documentaries very often. It's, it's one of those things I mean to do more, but I've always got so many things on the go, I just never get around to watching documentaries. I tend to prefer fiction myself, but this is one of those things I had to watch just because, oh, the guys who made all my favorite movies, there's a documentary about them, and they're showing never-before-seen behind-the-scenes footage. Uh, yes, please. Count me in on that. So, Light and Magic is something I had to make appointment viewing for, and I was not disappointed. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's incredible. What do you think, Ryan? Just in summation here? Yeah. I watch some documentaries, but they're mostly about shocking. I'm a Gen Z. True crime. Uh, <gasps> about murders that happened in the 70s and 80s. How they got away with it. The corruption and all, all that jazz. So I thought I need something a little lighter. So I like ILM. Love Star Wars. Love Indiana Jones. Did not realize how many movies they actually did. But when you think about it, as you're watching, you're like, oh, of course they did that. And I was very interested because I knew just from watching Quarter Digital's VFX artists react, they talk about ILM all the time and how they were the pioneers of like the CGI movement. But this documentary like takes a deep dive into how they actually were the pioneers of this, this whole movement. It's a, I, I, I honestly, like, I almost teared up multiple times because just the magic joy. Yeah, like, the joy in the actual, like, it sounds like a pun, but the actual magic in filmmaking. It really is magical. I, I don't know how else to describe it. When you're watching these things coming to life, just imagination how these people, come to like, life. How these people overcame so many obstacles that no one thought you could ever get over. Like, think about, think about taking a piece of paper, right? Yep. Drawing, like, a spaceship or something on there. Or, oh, God, I just spilled my water everywhere. I should have came prepared. So, say, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to just do a circle, because my pencil's a little fucked. Cutting that out, and then having, like, say, so, say, a model of the circle, and have to have them line up with each other. So that this is the background of the model, which is on a blue screen, and having to do that millions of times, 
for what, like 178 VFX shots or whatever the first movie was, and then triple that for the second movie, and then triple that again for the third movie. Like, and then just keep the going. The amount of exoblade, like kids today, you don't understand the horror of what a film editor was back in the 70s, physically having to strip film. Your tables being lined. If you want to know how crazy film editing is, watch the movie The Aviator, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. It talks about Howard Hughes and how he was a filmmaker at the beginning of his career. And he, at the time, what's it called? Angels? Wings? Angels, it was wing, whatever. Wings? No. Whatever. Whatever it was. Something, I think he had it... something to do with airplanes. At the time, it was... I believe it was the first movie to win Best Picture at the Oscars in about 1927 or 8, something like that. Let me double check sure. that sure, fact. But uh... but also, at the time, it was the most expensive movie ever made, which was like in the 20s. I think it went for like a few million dollars, which in today's case is a laugh. But there's a scene in that where it's literally a whole warehouse of just people covered in film. Just absolutely covered, like dressed there, literally have it draped over their shoulders, looking up in the lights to see where they can do a little cutoff, where they tape it on, like... And it's so simple. And I feel George. I, I have the same feeling with that. I don't like doing that type of physical work. And he had the idea in his mind to be like, we need to make this easier. Put it on digital. Make it simple that we can just... That was basically he, the story of George I, I'm Lucas. Say this, yes. I'm going to say this the whole podcast. He needs to be praised more for the ideas and what he contributed to society because no one else was thinking this 100%, way. 100%. Or if anyone 100%. thought this way. If anyone thought this way. He's not just the Star Wars guy. He's a technological pioneer who single-handedly did so much to contribute to our modern society, which we'll get into later. But the world would not look the way it is today without George Lucas thinking bigger than most people dared at the time. Yeah, like, he is, I will say it, he is the godfather of digital cinema. He himself did not physically make, you know, the digital stuff, but he's the one who had the idea. And, and what they say is in the documentary, if you don't know how to do something, hire people who know how to do it. And then just tell them that they... And just tell them that they can do it. I love how they I were talked, saying... I joked sorry. about this with you in, like the, in the fifth episode. The little back and forth between him and John Knoll, who, by the way, who worked on Star Wars, was the creator of fucking Photoshop. Think about that. And also Pixar, which is insane. And he came up with Photoshop and while he was at ILM. This all comes from one place. Yeah. They, they made it to... Well, basically, they were just making it to try to manipulate images digitally. It was just a tool that mm -hmm. ILM was using to manipulate tools digitally, and then he sold it as its own separate application later, and it became Photoshop. To Steve Jobs. Oh, not Photoshop. I thought you meant that Pixar, because there was Pixar. a thing. Yeah. Yeah, there was a thing called a Pixar machine, and then he created Photoshop for like kind of the same thing, but he technically created both, which is fucking insane to me. But they're a little back and forth between him and George. Talking about, like, oh, you don't know how much work this is going to be. Like, this is going to cost a lot of money. And George's like, yeah, it will. But just see what happens. Just do it. Like, there's no one, no one in their right mind 
would have told people to just do this. Like, George didn't care about the money. He saw what was going to happen and pushed people, pushed ILM, basically, to create magic. And what, and what we know today, like, it's so easy to open Premiere and snap two clips together. You know how much scotch tape they had to create back in the day? It wasn't just the cameras. Attack of the Clones, they say, is the first blockbuster film filmed on all digital. They had the idea of digital cameras before. They had some digital cameras in the 80s. But George Lucas's contributions to it are what helped make it mainstream. Not just the use of digital cameras in blockbuster filmmaking, which without which we probably wouldn't have you know, more investment in that side of technology for even things like your smartphones. How different would the world be if digital and camera technology had not been invested in? You would not have your smartphones as you know them today. But not only that, but he pushed for digital projection in movie theaters, tried to get rid of the entire idea of film reels, tried to streamline the whole process, made the first editing computers that were all digital too. Once again, guys like us, my first editing software was on computer. I didn't ever have to chop up films and, you know, I used video cameras and edited on pretty low-grade stuff. I think it was Windows Live or Windows, Windows Movie, Movie Maker, Maker yeah. was my first. And then I upgraded to more, but I don't think this would have happened without George Lucas spearheading the idea for digital film, for, yeah, for digital cameras, digital editing. He also did digital sound with THX, and I believe he also helped come up with Dolby Surround Sound. And so basically, the everything digital, George Lucas didn't necessarily come up with it, all any of it. There were prototypes before, but he directly pushed for it and tried to make it mainstream. And he... It, exactly. And he, he was willing to fork out the money for it. Nobody thought it was viable or could be done, but he was willing to say, no, this is the future. This, this should happen. And just because it, it's kind of like necessity is the mother of invention, they say. When it came to the film editing in particular, I remember a scene in the documentary where he said he was just sick of being surrounded by all the film, like you were saying about, you know, just draped mm -hmm. in film pieces cut out everywhere all over the floor and not being able to find anything not easily sorted. And he's like, there needs to be a central hub for this stuff. So then he got some computer nerds on it, and voila. And the funniest part about all that stuff is that they did admit in the documentary that he barely knows how to use a computer himself, even to this day. <laughs> kind of well, like Ryan was saying, the godfather of a lot of our modern world is uh not very tech savvy himself but he thinks big i know it's so funny it's so funny and i think he gets he gets a lot of hate with the prequels especially in terms of dialogue but i think he needs to equally get as as much praise for the technical marvel that those prequels are like you go back and watch the prequels some of them still like some of those shots still hold up like a lot there's a lot that doesn't but there's a lot that still hold up and like, especially in the first movie, you're watching, no matter how silly it is, like probably one of the first fully CGI, like full scale battles on screen 
between the Gungans and the droids. I've also got to say, branching off that, I know a lot of people like to talk about Andy Serkis as Gollum, as being one of the first big examples mm-hmm. of motion capture. I need to shout out Ahmed Best's work as Jar Jar Binks. Nobody likes to give him any credit because he gets, you know, the character is not that popular. Shat on. And he gets, yeah, yeah and he gets shat on just because it's a character. But Ahmed Best was a forerunner for motion cap technology. The work he did paved the way for Andy Circus, And nobody seems to talk about that just because he played Jar Jar. I'm like, no, no, everyone, give Ahmed Best some credit for what he did. Yeah. <laughs> That's my soapbox. I mean, yeah, for like the, and it's funny in the behind the scenes, you actually see he's wearing like a head of Jar Jar and his eyes are up on like on his head, but they have like this visor around his eyes, not for him, but just so the other actors don't look at his eyes. They have it looking at Jar Jar's eyes. So there's not that like conflicting because naturally when you go to look at somebody, you look at their eyes. Yeah. Which I found very funny. We talked a lot about George now, but let's go to... The ILM crew themselves, because that's really what the meat of this documentary is about. George Lucas is the brainchild of ILM. He created them to fulfill his purpose, which originally was to make the original Star Wars movie for 1977. But they're the real heroes of the show here. He's the ideas guy, should be celebrated. But let's, let's talk about the guys who actually did the stuff George wanted them to do. So, who were the original who were the original bunch of ILM? Well, one of the things I found most fascinating about this documentary was how they discussed how it all came together. John Dykstra, who George hired to come up with a VFX team, he knew some guys, and those guys knew some guys, and those guys knew some guys. Everybody kind of just knew each other, and they all ended up in this warehouse together and just a bunch of young dudes goofing off in a warehouse playing with toys uh model works and just that that's basically what it was just a bunch of young dudes playing with toys in a warehouse and they didn't realize they were in the midst of making a classic or setting up a legacy which would stretch 40 plus years to today but yeah, it's crazy. Like just these pioneers. Yeah. One of the things I also thought was pretty fascinating was how these guys had always been in the film. And I think it was Ken Ralston in particular. They showed his childhood films from the 60s and those freaking blew my mind. Mm-hmm. He did better special effects work in those 1960s films with than most people do now. Yeah, that I can I can't even imagine how limited his technology was just as just as some kid with a camera and Yeah, like cuz I'm I'm still trying to figure out how like a kid with a camera was able to do stop motion while having actual people on the screen at the same time. Yeah, a a kid in like the 60s or like early 70s during that. I don't know how he did it. He was doing more innovative special effects work in his backyard. Than TikTokers. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, TikTok. Like me, look, I, I'm I'm not a visual effects guy, but me with the full weight of modern software still probably can't pull off what he did. That's just 
because, well, that's that speaks to my lack of skill, but it also speaks to his skill that he has less than what I have now, and I still can't pull off what he did. One of the ones that in particular really impressed me was the one where some ogre was hanging over a fence and swatting at him with a bat, and he was swatting back at yeah. him in the room or something. And I'm like, how did you, how did you do this stuff? And then there was, I guess, Phil Tippett with his model, his toys, his stop motion little shorts, which were also really cool mm-hmm. to see and how they got their inspirations from monster magazines and whatnot. They they came from a wide variety of backgrounds. Some of them were, I think, in the military together. and It's pretty cool. They all came from... A bunch of different places. Yeah, and they also apparently they like did they did a f- film competition like through a magazine too. And then that's how some of them met as well. Oh yeah. And I think it was Dennis Mirren. Dennis is his last name. I remember Dennis. I don't oh remember. Oh my gosh. He's literally the guy that like pushed for CGI Dennis, besides yeah, George. Dennis Mirren. Yeah, Dennis Dennis Mirren, they're like, this guy wins all the time, he's the best. One of my funniest things about Dennis Mirren is how adaptable this guy was. I don't remember where he started mm-hmm. in in ILM, but I know how he, he ended as the head of the visual effects department in the computers. He's very versatile. He kind of just went wherever he was needed, which is pretty cool. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, I'll figure it out. And then he does. <laughs> yeah. Like, the man helps make... The, like, very first ever computer CGI creature or um, computer-generated, like, character. Like, the stained glass man and young Sherlock. Which, in 1985, is still looks pretty impressive. So, it's very impressive. And if you see the technology the way they did, they didn't move, like, data around. They moved polygons. Like polygons. Like, do you like? Do, do people understand how difficult that is? They literally what they did. They, they did the same thing with Tron, or even Tron. It was tougher because they did they not do Tron as well? ILM. I think it said they were involved in it. So what they basically did for Tron, I'm gonna explain Tron because I know more of it. They didn't. There was no preview. What they did was they they got math geniuses, punched in a bunch of numbers, and said, okay. This is what we think will happen at the end of it. Punch in the numbers into the computer, rendered it, and whatever came out, came out during the light cycle scene. What I'm talking about, like that CGI. Mm-hmm. Because there, there was no preview. There's no, there's no processing power for that. So I literally just had to like trust in this very experimental thing. And don't get me started about Tron. We're cutting out film. Like those costumes were the all lit up. That's them cutting out pieces of film and then someone shining a light behind that film and then compressing it into film. I'm telling you, freaking film back in the day for like a Star Wars project was probably this thick. I don't know how they, (laughs) I don't know how they were able to do it. I really don't. A part of me wants to time travel just to go to ILM, just to see them work on this stuff. They had to invent, they had to invent so many things just to make this movie work. One of my favorite parts of the documentary is when they, you see them for the whole first episode. They've been working for months, just constantly, day mm-hmm. in and day out, basically living at this warehouse. 
and after months of all this setup, they only have two effects done. And then George Lucas shows back up from England, and he's... Livid. Yeah. You only did two. To be fair, the one shot they had was pretty good. I don't remember the second, but the... The one shot was the laser firing on the Death Star. Not the big one, but like the turret. The second one was the f- escape pod jettisoning from the Tan T4. That looked awesome. Yeah. The dust and whatever. That looked great. Actually, I'm pretty sure that but also it, it's it like, wasn't that the shot in the documentary that convinced Steven Spielberg? He's like, hey. Yep. This, 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 this is going to be fucking good. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be good. Because of what, and I love how they even highlighted the one guy was like, yeah, I also put salt or whatever he said at the beginning. He was like, I put dust or little dust particles. Or so yeah. when it shut out, it looked like that just adds more effect to it. And what, and then they even talk about like, how are they going to open this? Like, how are they going to do that? And it, them explaining how they did that shot blew my fucking mind. Like, I was like, how did they get the models to go over camera? No, no, it's in reverse. The camera's coming towards them, or the camera's going towards the model. So, and then it's just flipped in reverse. I was like, oh, fucking course it is. Like, you, and it's just like, it's the simplest trick, reversing film. Like, some of these, like, amazing shots that you see in Star Wars or Indiana Jones, it's the simplest trick. But it literally is just people being creative, people having the right imagination. They had to build the rigs, rig. though. And the they put the rigs, the models on the rigs, and even though the camera's moving towards yes. it, the, it's still tilting in frame. But wh- how did those? Ca- That's how. Yeah. How did those cameras work? They were saying how they had to do, they had to make cameras which could go on the tracks. To they had to film it multiple ways. I think they, they had to have mm-hmm. it down to so exact timings and angles and everything to get the same shot, so they could line it up. So I know this. So what they have, they they created the first ever motion control camera. So yes. basically what they did, because they have to have, they have to add multiple plates. So say you have a shot of the Millennium Falcon. Oh, I had a little trinket of the Millennium Falcon, but it broke off. No. Say they had the Millennium Falcon like coming in, swooping in, and that's one shot, right? That's one shot of them doing that. So they would film the Millennium Falcon on a blue screen doing that. Yes. And then they would film a track of maybe the background or something else. Okay. Or, okay. or then like a different, and then a different take of a different film exposure where the, I think the Millennium Falcon was either all black or all white. And then the background is the opposite color, all white, all black. And alpha, so that they were able to cut, yeah, alpha or whatever, to cut called. that out and then make that a plate so that when they add in the background, it wouldn't clip through the Millennium Falcon. And that's why you see in New Hope, there's a little black line around the models. And the only way they were able to do this is because it was a motion control camera where they just punch in a bunch of numbers, hit go, and the camera would do the exact same motion with each take. So it's basically a perfect rig. What I also so loved first was ever, like, they, they upgraded that on Empire Strikes Back, where they also had to do that motion mm-hmm. rig, but then they invented that... The potatoes. Yeah. They invented that machine that could just compress it all even tighter so you wouldn't see the mat lines. Exactly. Dude, I love that, like, these top-tier, like, movies, like, 
they're still like a little janky in terms of special effects. Like they use potatoes as asteroids in some of the shots. They're hilarious. like, we don't, we don't have enough rocks. Some of them are potatoes. Can you guess which one? Oh, uh, it's so funny. Didn't he say one of his shoes one is his in shoes. there too? Yeah. <laughs> like, you never notice. <laughs> Did you notice? Yeah, he said like I was dying. So good. Because the, at the end of the day, we're all kids playing dress up and playing pretend and just trying to solve a problem. That was another great moment this... at the end. At the end was when Phil Tippett said his daughter said, Dad, I think I'm a little oh, old yeah. to be playing with toys and that makes me sad. He's like, you never have to stop playing with toys if you're making movies. And then I got the mm-hmm. toys and started playing. So. Which is true. Which is what I told my parents when I have hoarded all my little toys over the years, like, don't worry, I'm going to use them for film. I will learn yeah, stop just... motion. <laughs> I will learn stop motion. I actually did do Lego animation for a while because I got into that for a bit. It's tougher than it looks. As part of my excuse for keeping so many Legos, I have a... I should show you sometime, but I have a whole closet full of them on a, like lined on a shelf and on display from i got rid of my lego sets and i regret it some of them might be valuable they stretch back to like you know i'm dating myself but some of them probably stretch back to 2002 some of them even the late 90s yeah i don't know how valuable lego sets are because i think they just remake them nowadays they just do a Modern, because the Death Star has been updated multiple times, and then I think the Millennium Falcon has been updated like three times. Yeah, but people but still yeah, like I got rid of all things. my Lego sets. I got rid of my Lego sets like years ago because I was going into high school and I thought it'd be embarrassing. And then, flash forward ten years later, COVID happened. Everyone got into Lego sets, and I was like, "You guys can't say this is cool now. This is stupid." And I got really mad at people who like <laughs> got into Lego sets. Oh. And I almost started again, but I have no room in my place. You know what? I, I I consider myself ahead of the curve then because I've always been into Lego since I was a kid. Never got out of it. Just love Lego. Kind of delay. Dude, I had I had Indiana Jones sets. I had Star Wars sets. Wow. I think that's it. I had one like I think maybe a Ninja Turtle set. I had the Raiders. I have the tomb from the beginning of the Ray's Lost Ark oh, Lego man. set. That's awesome. That was an expensive set back in the day. That's I also awesome. had one where it was him and Sean Connery. My very first Lego set was literally 15 bucks. And it's the scene in Last Crusade where they're on the scooter, the motorcycle, and he's yeah, in like, yeah, yeah. The, the seat. It's literally that. That's awesome. God. We're a little off what, topic. It was like another, another big set I had. I had the big ship in Star Wars. Anyway. Nothing too yeah. gigantic, because my parents would be like, you're crazy. But, um... The bigger the better, <sighs> I thought. It was more fun to do the huge sets. Yeah. My best one was a, well, Republic, yeah, was like, a Republic Cruiser. I want one of those. My that one? Like, no. <laughs> I saved up my paper route money for that one and spent about... It was about a thousand bucks at the time. And that was 2011 yeah. or so. Crazy. I think the biggest one I had was the... Just like the drop, like the gunship, the Republic gunship, where they would just come in, land down, and the doors were open. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Like it. And every Clone Wars episode, and then I also had a tank. Oh, the tank with like the six weird legs. All right, so what were you about to say? Oh man, uh, ILM. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the how discussion. they solved. That's how they solved most of their problems in terms of. Or, like, a huge problem is, like, how are we going to get all these shots to track up? Motion control camera. Let's try it. It's just, like, 
just one guy can have a great idea, right? Just yeah. one guy. And it's also, again, I'm going to praise George again because there were some shots where he was like, I don't know what to do for here. So he goes to Phil Tippett and says, do you have an idea for this chess scene? And then, or I don't remember how it went, or maybe he saw something that Phil did. It was like, hey, can you like move this monster to do this? And he was like, yeah, sure, I can try and show you. And then shows him, was like, great, I want you to do a whole scene about this. From what I remember, what happened was George had an idea for the scene, but then another movie around the same time basically did the exact same thing. So then he was talking, That's right. he was in the office and he noticed Phil had all these, I don't remember, just trinkets and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just toys, basically, just sitting around the office. And he's like, do you, uh, you do, you do um, what's it, stop motion, right? Stop yeah. motion. Can you uh, do something for this scene? <laughs> Sorry, I should have been doing so a- So genius. I should have been doing a George impression there, but- uh, Oh well, moment. I just lo- I also just love during the interviews how dry George Lucas's humor is. He's great. He's just like I just told him to do it, and they did. Well, it was something like it's like well, I was under a lot of stress for the first movie. I think it put a lot of people. I think I put a lot of people under stress. <laughs> he just like full on admits it. I could tell he was stressed. That behind the scenes footage, I'm like, oh man, you look like you're poor guy. You look like kept you're all his hair a- though. Yeah. Kept all his hair. I don't think the man's aged in 20 years. He's, looks, he's looking good no. still. He looks decent. He looks good for someone of his age. I will say that. But he hasn't he's really He's a pioneer aged. of the... He's the pioneer of the no-neck beard. Has George Lucas aged... A lot of people aged, talk him into that. He's looked the same way my entire life, though. I saw footage of him when I, I was a little kid when the prequels were coming out, and he looks the exact same today. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's insane. He kind of just stopped good. aging in his 60s. God, but it's just like, and we have to talk about the biggest betrayal, well, not betrayal, but just the biggest, like, we're not Backstab. bringing you on for, for this history. Just John Dykstra. John Dykstra was completely, the man. Yeah. George Completely thrown to, to the yeah. curb. Yeah, he was the guy in charge. The first few episodes make a big point about how he was the guy who everybody looked up to. He's one of the coolest guys. At ILM behind the scenes, he was he was the best, biggest inventor inventor of things. He kind of pushed things forward. He wasn't the best organizer. They did need to bring in some guys to kind of keep him on track. And I think he even won the Oscar alongside the rest of the visual mm-hmm. effects team for A New Hope that year. And then they do Empire and decide not to bring him back. They brought the rest of ILM back. It's kind of a bringing the band back together, but let's leave out the lead singer because... Yeah, it's like, we're going to go on a reunion tour. We're going to go on a reunion tour, but Phil Collins, you can't come. It's, it's like the main attraction or whatever. And for those you Gen Z people don't know, he was in the band Genesis, okay? Look up a history book. God, I know for a fact some people are going to see this, but like, who's Phil Collins? What's a book? But yeah, and I think they kind of, not to, sh- there's, I, don't, I'm, I love this documentary, we're just kind of nitpick it a bit. They kind of move you in towards a way where they're justified in firing John Dykstra, but also everyone on this movie were just a bunch of kids. 
they didn't know how to make a film, like a big budget film. They didn't care about time. They didn't really care about money. I think that's why he got fired, though. It's because he was one of the older guys there, though. He even... and also, he, one- he even admitted it, too. He was like, I I felt I didn't care for the corporate ladder of it, of it. Or someone else left later on. They said it was becoming too corporate yeah, and what stopped feeling like a film name? studio. What was his name again? Lorne? No, that wasn't Lorne. Lorne did the Joe models. Joe Johnson, maybe? Nope. Was it Joe Johnson? Nope. He left. Ken? Nope. Was it Ken? <laughs> I'm out of names. Okay, one sec, one sec. Uh, shoot. But yeah, and I kind of understand where they're coming from, but I also would understand where the studios are coming from as well. Like, they do have to meet a goal, and it is the harsh reality of this is what we have to do. And if we have to leave you behind. But I also hope John Dykstra got at least some stock in ILM. <laughs> Like later on in his life, I don't know if he does. Richard, but... it was Richard Edland. Thank you. That's who that was. He, yeah, he left around Return of the Jedi. I think he said when it started getting a little too corporate, and he wasn't. Yeah, but John Dykstra wasn't the last one to get stabbed in the back, because one of the things I thought most interesting about this documentary, and I feel like I've been saying that a lot, but there were a lot of interesting things about this documentary. So sue me. But it was fascinating to me how part of the whole thing about ILM at its core is about technological advancement. We're always finding new and better ways to make movie magic. But ILM sort of became a victim of its own success in later years when digital technology started becoming the best way to do things. Well, suddenly, the model, the art departments, the model departments, matte paintings, creature design, puppetry, all that stuff became the old, inferior way of doing things when they were doing it so cutting edge a few decades before. Well, suddenly, they were closing down those departments entirely. And all the guys we've been following in this documentary who were pioneers in their fields, well, they were out of work now or had to convert to digital. Because mm-hmm. ILM just kept pushing the envelope and they were starting to leave they were starting to leave parts of themselves behind, which I thought was tragic. But also you it's one of those things you always should should have seen coming because, well, A history, but also that's just the way the trajectory was going through the whole doc, through the whole documentary. They left other people behind just at the at the get go because the whole point of ILM was to always be pushing. But I bet they never thought yeah. within 20 years, a lot of them would be obsolete. I know. It's just, it's crazy. And I'm like, I have to bring up John Dykstra. What else he worked on afterwards? He had a good career. I saw his IMDb. Stuart, Stuart Little. My first Batman movie. Batman Forever, Batman Robin. X-Men First Class. Spider-Man 1 and 2. Which is why Spider-Man 2 looks fucking amazing. is because of him. Good career. I like Great career. all those movies. So. But I am obsessed with matte paintings. Just how I, I, I want to look at an old movie now and guess where they cut shit out. Because I'm just, an artist took, it's literally art. That's what it is. You can go to some auctions now and buy matte paintings from Star Wars. 
And of course, they go for thousands of dollars. But if I was rich, I would go to one and try to snag a matte painting because that's literal art. And I'm not saying people who do the CGI on computers now and make those backgrounds. That's not art, but it it is. But in its own digit, its own special digital way, it's not but tangible. This is like though. An art, like it's not ta- it's not physical. Like you can like this is like the one of one. This is the thing that someone created with their ban- ha- bare hands that they had in their mind. Like, think about all the little details they did on the Death Star. Or or even Cloud City. Like, they talked about, like, I don't think you can do clouds that well. Like, them joking d- around with each other. Dare to say, just... Ralph McQuarrie can't do clouds. <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> well, that was Ralph amazing. Ralph McQuarrie. His famous, like, concept art. Like... It's just, it's just amazing. It just amazes me the matte paintings that they had to do. I challenge anyone. Harrison Allen Shaw was his name. Yeah, I the- challenge anyone to look at a matte painting and say that sucks because you will never see it. Matte paintings are beautiful. I would have my wall decorated with multiple of them if I could. I would have my wall be a matte painting if I could, but I can't paint because it's in my contract. Look, I understand why they got phased out, because with CGI and green screens, it's like, okay, it's we're, cheaper, basi- it's easier. we're basically just doing the same thing anyway. We take, we cut out the subject, we can resize them, reshape them however we want, and then we make a background that we could make 3D, we could move it around, we can digitally change little bits about it from frame to frame. Mm-hmm. Matte paintings were very intensive for just a one-and-done still shot so basically doing a seed in modern editing basically just doing a green screen key is basically like doing a matte painting now just throwing in a back a static background is basically just that so i understand why it got phased out but it's a real shame at the same time because it's yeah it's such a well it's art so yeah it's also why i love this documentary because they take most focus on how they made these films back in the day, like the model work. People just like, God, how amazing would it be just to go into like work and physically model a ray, like a rancor or a, like a ship that day. Like you're literally just kit bashing. That's also something they invented, kit bashing, where they just took stuff from, the model, from like their little piles of work, the yeah. models, and then just put them together and they made iconic ships. And it's just... They're just making art and making history every... Like, let me read you off the list of accomplishments that ILM has done. Just a few... Like, I'll go all the way up to the 90s. You'd be here all day. They created motion capturing. They created motion control cameras. First use of Go Motion with the Tauntaun and the Empire Strikes Back, which has its own little segment in the dock, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I also love that bit when they were telling the news reporter what they were doing and just straight up lying about it because they're like, you won't know the difference. First in-house, completely computer-generated sequence, Genesis sequence in Star Trek II. Which I remember is a great first, sequence. First computer-generated character, Stained Glass Man from yep. Sherlock. Yep. Morphing. Morphing in Willow, which has been copied thousands of times. And I love how they say that they spell morphing wrong now. They spell it wrong even in the dictionary. It was or always, cor- and according to Dennis Mirren. It was always in F. M-O- always in F. M-O-R-F-I-N-G. 
First digital compositing of a full screen live action image during the final sequence of The Last Crusade. First generated 3D character to show emotion. The Fiosad creature, the the water thing. The one from, from the, the abyss. abyss, yeah. And that's just in the 70s and 80s. That's not even half the damn list. These are these guys. They will go the, if this if this fucking company ever closes down. I will be shocked. There's no way they have to be kept alive forever because they've said multiple times in the documentary VFX house houses don't last. They maybe stay up for like a few decades, or at least they did at the time. And they are the top dog. They are. I'm guessing now, if you want to work there, you have to have something either really creative or just be like really good at one specific thing because they. Yeah. They're geniuses. Which, once again, I think it's crazy how they went from just a couple of outsiders playing with toys in a warehouse to the biggest visual effects company on the planet. Which, I yeah. do agree with, with Eng- England there, that they did get a little too corporate. And I noticed that, I, well, this is just my personal opinion based on what I saw in this documentary, but the last episode in the Disney era... Kind of, the tone was off to me. I don't know about how you felt about it, but once they... Rise of Skywalker? But once they got past the the prequels bits and the digital technology and it kind of blazed through to after Disney purchased Lucasfilm, the tone kind of changed. There was all these executives that were talking, like not they weren't getting the creators as much to talk anymore. Mm. It was a bunch of executives I'd never heard of who hadn't been in the documentary see, previous. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so you're getting more executives. It started being a lot less. There were a lot of, they talked a lot about behind the scenes drama in, in a lot of the past documentary, but it's like things just got totally sanitized as soon as they got to the Disney era. It's like, nope, mm-hmm. nothing bad to say. Because they still work there. Yeah. No one had anything bad to say about the last few years, I mean, of course, like they were talking about the volume and Kathleen Kennedy has said nothing wrong in her career. Yeah, it's just she's the president. <laughs> I just noticed a, a change in tone when it got to it. Yeah, just, it started getting a lot saying, more yeah. sanitized and corporatized. And I'm like, uh, yep, Disney's putting a muzzle on them now if they had anything bad to say about this era of ILM's history. It's. So I feel like the documentary was a little bit hampered that way, in honesty. And yeah. I, I think if they did a follow-up in how many years' time, we could see... 20. What... <laughs> when most people are dead. Oh, man. Yeah, so that's... God, it's just like... That's my one complaint about this documentary, is that that last episode just felt a little bit off, because I felt like people couldn't really say what they were thinking, but if they also, had anything bad to say. But also, I really enjoyed how honest John Favreau was about Iron Man, how he really didn't want to do it, and how he was so against CG at the time. And then he saw a, he saw a shot of... The Mark II. Iron Man suiting up the first time the Mark II is like, oh, that looks really good. The real suit, like, no, this is the CGI. And they're like, what? And he sh- showed him a comparison shot and how the CGI looked better. And he was like, I had full faith in ILM then at the time to do that. And that movie doesn't get enough credit for 
how perfect the CGI is in that. In terms, because you can't just do that. You can't just have a suit set up like that. Like, you have to study engineering and... I'm trying to think of another word, but just basically engineering on, like, how a suit like that would perform and how it would be, like, how it would actually form together, build together, like, drill, like, the drilling in it. It's just, like, and when you're watching it, you're like, this doesn't feel like CG because there was a, there's a story element to it as well. And I think that's where a lot of films fail. And I think George, someone says in this documentary, I think it's George, the effect, or maybe it's Steven, maybe it's Spielberg, where the effects have to serve the story, not the other way, or the story has to serve the effects, something like that, where it's like... One of them pointed out how now that effects have been pretty well standardized and that everybody <laughs> knows CGI is a thing, especially, yeah, our eyes train to look for visual effects. And because things are progressing at... I'd say these visual effects breakthroughs are progressing at a slower rate than ever now, ever since digital became so prevalent. So everyone kind of knows the visual effects thing. So we can't really be dazzled as much anymore. Used to be a film with incredible visual, something like Tron, for example. The story isn't great, but it's so visually dazzling at the time that that's enough of a, of a reason to go see it. But that's not really so, so nowadays. Now you, need a good story and the visual effects you you kind of just know are either going to be at least passable in most cases so you need more than just visual effects to get you in the door was the point yeah exactly and i think i'm just going to use iron man as an example about how effects should serve the story like this is not me shitting on the film again because i've done that in recent times but uh in multiverse of madness where Doctor Strange is fighting the big tentacle monster at the beginning. Gamma Goranth, or maybe isn't it, or whatever. But it's like a nod towards it. It doesn't matter. You know it's CG, and it's done very well. It's done very... And it looks amazing. But who cares in the moment? But also, like, great. It's, he's fighting another... And it's, it's shot well, it's done very well, but it's not, it's not a spectacle, right? CGI monster. Haven't seen that before. Wow. But, and I'm going to bring up the Iron Man suit again, when he's first suiting up in the Mark III, where he's got the, it's painted or whatever, it's all painted, and he's finally put the mask on. The reason why that is an amazing spectacle, because it is story-driven. It's not the suit Tony, that matters. Before he's, Tony is watching news of... Terrorist attack. The can... terrorist, the terrorist attack, using his weapons... And that he says was, enough is so, enough. Oh God! To the ten rings. Sorry, I just accidentally, I just accidentally accepted cookies by accident. <gasps> and so it's so you're with him in that moment where it's like, what have I done? I've basically funded these yeah. this terrorist organization, which now I just realized might be a hint towards America. <clears throat> <laughs> Am I gonna get in trouble? Anyway, yes. But it's just, it's story-driven, and you're with him in that moment, and the way it's shot, it goes through the feet first, and then it goes up to his leg, and then the thigh, and then you see his chest but put on, then its head. It's a literal build-up to the final reveal of Iron Man, where, again, not to shit on the newer MCU, but in Infinity War, he just does a double tap, and it all just kind of forms around him, which, for the time, was amazing to see. 
And but I do kind of miss the old. Well, see in that one, in that one, the, the suit the was older face. In that time, the suit was the point. The story didn't matter. Yeah. It's like okay, so big bad guy is attacking the planet, and and Tony Stark has to suit up, and yeah, but he doesn't really have any reason to other than mm-hmm. okay, that's just what I do. The first one, like you said, had a lot and more of not- a personal drive to it. Whereas, and it's not that in a in a in Affinity War, when he suits up, it's bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but the reason why in the first Iron Man that it's much better and a bigger spectacle, is because it serves the story. It is serving the story and the character. What's supposed to do, which is why I had a, I have a problem with newer superhero movies, and not just Marvel, just like other others in general, or just any. All of them. Like, any any effect in general. Like, you can even say in the newer Stranger Things season, spoiler alert, when Max is running away from Vecna in his, in the... Maybe don't say anymore. Down? I don't know. I mean, I don't let's, know. Let's I don't just, know. For spoilers, Wherever. let's Wherever just leave it. Let's just leave in it. The, in, in, the, in the red room. She's so running. Don't say that. She's running away. And there's some green screen, and there's some compositing. You can tell. But you are so with her in the moment. That you were literally terrified. Like, what is going to happen to her? Is she going to die? Like, you're terrified that something bad is going to happen to her. And the effects are there to serve the story. It's yes. not, oh, we just teleport to this place and it's scary or whatever. It's like, no, it was established early on what this place is. Who Vecna is. What he could possibly do to Max. And it's just, f- watching that for the first time was the first time ever in a long while that I was tense. And that I was scared for a character. Doesn't happen in maybe over five years because I'm so you the, again the Duffer Brothers are geniuses and they set it up very well, and they're they have they have a masterclass of storytelling and you get involved with these characters like look what's happened with Chrissy, people are, love Chrissy she's in one episode, she's in one episode she's in maybe three or four scenes and I was but she this, is I was this close to getting a ticket to see her at Fan Expo I'm like. Ugh. They sell no, out. There's, no, there was other people I wanted to see more, but she was only mm. in one episode, and I was this close to paying seventy bucks for her. But, I saw you know. someone I someone I know. Um, they did they did a photo op with uh, Joseph, but then they I think Chrissy was doing signings. Oh yeah. So they did they waited in that line. So maybe we'll have a chance. All right. Well, we're we're running out of time, so let's we got it. We got to power through <sighs> more of our thoughts here. So. Should I just go through their other accomplishments? <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, think like, another I think like, other think about it. Yeah. I think go ahead, go other ahead. other people besides John Dykstra, a lot of people got screwed at ILM. Like I said, when they were transitioning over, there was kind of this culture of like we were talking about the other day, there was kind of this culture of oh, if you're joining digital, you're the enemy. But a lot of people wanted to jump ship instead because uh, we're going to get fired if we don't go to digital. So that, that was... We a... talked about this. <laughs> we talked about how I would have switched over and you would have stayed in modeling. Oh, yeah. You would have hated me for oh, yeah. it. <laughs> I'm a traditionalist. And if I was at ILM at that time, I would definitely have fallen into that mentality. Oh, you... Like, I, I don't have anything against digital in... in... Traitor! Yeah, I, I'd say I wouldn't have any. Maybe that's where traitor comes from. But I'd say tradition matters, and you traitors are betraying your craft for computers. 
Maybe that's where the line in the in the sequel series Trader comes from. It's from people at ILM. Yeah. Screaming. Trader. Okay, fine. You wanna you you can make the model oh. in your hands, feel it, mold it, craft it. The only thing you'll ever feel in your hands again is a mouse. Maybe a keyboard. Fine. You call that modeling? Jokes on you. I choose a a mouse pen. I would okay. never do a mouse pen. But some people do. It's good for the wrist. And in that reality, I got fired. <laughs> Maybe brought back for the Mandalorian. Like that one guy. Should have learned Blender. Yeah, the one, the the one, one guy. Dude. <laughs> the one guy got to come back for the Mandalorian just to make the Razor <gasps> Crest. Oh my god. And it looks amazing. Yeah. It's one of the better shots in the show. Exactly. Because it's real. Oh, and they because John Favreau threw him a bone because they use the same techniques with a little bit of tweaks with the volume as well, motion control camera, and have the model fly by, and it's one of the better shots and technically one of the better shots in most of Star Wars. Part of me, ah, I hate though watching like this is just a personal critique. I hate watching uh. Like behind the scenes and knowing that the sh- like the full ship isn't real, that's only in parts. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to explore the whole ship, <laughs> but I know realistically that can't happen. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think of the other directors and people? Because sometimes it seemed like okay, oh, they're yes. just they're just getting guys like Spielberg run. They're getting guys like John Favreau and J.J. Uh, well, Abrams in here just for star yeah. credit. But other times I'm like. Okay, so guys like J.J. Abrams and, and John Favreau kind of felt more like, okay, you're just getting them in here because they're still working for you. So that feels like, okay, it's just a little bit of, not propaganda here, but once again, because they're more in the yeah. later ones. But guys like, well, Sp- like Spielberg in particular felt super legit to me, and Ron Howard as well, because they'd been around mm-hmm. for decades. You know, Ron Howard did Willow, and Steven Spielberg was there on Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, to name just a couple of the ones he did with ILM and Steven Spielberg was, you know, there sitting in the editing bay watching those clips of a new hope with George. He was close friends with George. So Steven Spielberg, even though he wasn't a direct part of ILM, it was George's company, but they were close friends and he was around that entire time. So having a guy of his caliber be doing these interviews, like that felt right to me, but some of the other ones, eh, a little less so. Imagine this, you're in, you're in your university class, and beside you is Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Francis Ford Coppola having lunch before they're all famous. Then you travel 40 years into the future, and you realize they're the top dogs. That's crazy. There was a few of them but that were friends. Talking about there was, they were also friends with Martin Scorsese, and I think, yeah. uh, who else? There talking was, about... There was a few others. But like talking about how the directors felt real. James Cameron had a few moments in the documentary and it was oh, good James to see Cameron him too. talk about yeah, yeah. it was good to see him talk about stuff that didn't have to do with him. Uh, <laughs> he is always talking jabbit. talking about his own He's a stuff. little javid. Jim James Cameron, uh, which, you know, he's got an ego, but it, he's allowed to have one. <laughs> he he makes good he and makes good most stuff. Most of them most of them felt very genuine, especially Steven. The only thing I thought was weird was seeing J.J. Abrams for like two seconds. He did and one I think movie with obviously him. It's one. 
two movies. It's one of those things. One of those. Well, let's just say one and a half. (laughs) The other half was by a producer. I think it's one of those things in documentaries where you have one person come in and sit down and you ask them like hours worth of questions, but they only have one thing to say that's really unique. Not to say J.J. Abrams isn't unique, but maybe multiple people said the same thing or said it in a different way. J.J. Abrams made a career of ripping off ideas of other people and letting others finish the mess he started. Sorry. I mean, he's good. I like him, but... I I like J.J. Abrams, but he's... Yeah. Well, Cloverfield, wasn't that original? Or was that someone else's idea? I don't know. I don't know. He takes a lot of inspiration and I, I, I like what he oh, does. Oh, he didn't direct that? That was Matt, that was Matt Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> there you have he it. Was, he produced it. Excuse me, he produced it. Oh, I'm sorry, JJ. I like you. I like you too, JJ, but like, I'm bitter. I'm, I'm bitter after your last few. I'm sorry. I'm still I entertained by you, them. JJ. You can cut. You can come on the podcast anytime. Please do. Please, we'll have we'll have uh, everybody. We'll have you, Ryan Johnson, Kathleen Kennedy, and we'll try to be nice. That'll be a whole episode. Just you guys, you guys all come on, and we try to be nice. <laughs> oh man, I'm li- I'm looking up his. Never mind. I won't even say it. John Favreau <laughs> can moderate. Oh, that'd be hilarious if John Favreau moderated like between fans and Catherine Kennedy. My goodness. Get Dave Filoni in there too. It had to be like one of those Jubilee videos, you know, like those videos where it's like they line up on a line. It's like people who agree go on this side and people who disagree go on that and then have a discussion. All right, what else about <laughs> they this? They should do one for Star Wars fans. Oh, that'd be so funny. Oh, but they do like really serious topics. So we're but down yeah, I loved a few minutes. Here. I love Steven Spielberg. Love Steven Spielberg's take on George Lucas and how he believed him and how he didn't want to work with anybody else besides ILM and how many projects him and ILM did together, like E.T., Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. Didn't do Jaws because Jaws was before this. Yeah. Back to the Future, which is a Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis film produced by Spielberg. I mean, like I think, yeah. like Kathleen was Kennedy. Zemeckis in this? He was in it for a bit, wasn't he? I don't remember. I think he did show up for a few seconds in one of the show episodes. For a few seconds, like he right said, in man, the middle. a few words. Yeah, yeah. God, but uh, what were they talking about with Back to the Future? They didn't really say much about it. Yeah, they kind of just. They kind of just glo- maybe the town. I don't know. They kind of just glossed they, over they, the mid eighties. They kind of they kind of just glossed over from Return of the Jedi. Yeah. They're like, you know, to, you know, this yeah. is great. <laughs> through to Jurassic like, Park. You know, this is great. They kind of just skip from Return of the Jedi to Jurassic Park with a little bit of mm. stuff in the middle. I think one thing that's not credited for ILM. I think they created the previs in a certain way, or at least Dennis Mirren did. Oh where, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a previs is is for people who don't know, is your film crew, your VFX crew, basically take a very, very cheap video storyboard of what they want to shoot the next day, or the director will do it as well. And it's a great way, it's what I would do, because I hate storyboarding. I I like it. It's a great way, and they just use little action figures, whatever, to do the moves or whatever, or you even use actors. You don't even have to use miniatures, you could use your parents at home, whatever, be like, hey, stand here, I'm going to do this, blah, blah, blah. 
It's a great way to just line up a shot that you think will look good. So I don't know if he created that, but I'm going to say he created it, because Dennis Mirren is a personal hero of mine and should have all the Oscars. If we're telling people who don't know, we should also say previs stands for pre-visualization. Just if Ryan's explanation oh, didn't make on. it entirely we're in clear. Gen Z. We're in Gen Z. They shorten every word in the book. I still need to know what the word is. You're right. <laughs> If we're, we need some context a little bit. I hate it when you write. So just scroll back a minute and re-listen to Ryan's explanation. I should have chimed in sooner, but I'm, I'm a shy person. I'm sorry. I let, Fuck you. I let Ryan speak. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> okay, so... Oh, God. Wrapping up now, this documentary... There's some time on here. We're, we're nearly at an hour. In yeah, yeah. summation, this documentary nearly made me want to switch careers. I've been basically on track to be some kind of screenwriter since I was seven years old, but this nearly made me want to get into visual effects. I've always mm -hmm. loved tinkering away with visual effects. Some of my favorite things in my amateur movies have been trying to find the best way to do visual effects shots, whether that be digital or practical. I've always been a practical man myself ideally especially on a budget of zero dollars that's always been some of the most fun stuff to me is finding a way to make things work on a zero dollar budget and i think i've gotten pretty good at it i'm not that's gonna... when the real magic shows up yeah i'm not gonna show you any clips right now well i don't know maybe i'll roll some stuff in the edit we'll see uh maybe not it's embarrassing it... <laughs> you can find them on youtube if you want find it in the link below yeah, find it on Thought Plane Media or JNLJ Productions, my old channel. Some of it's okay. Some of it's a little rough. But, yeah, this nearly makes me want to jump ship to visual effects work because it looked like they had a lot of fun doing it. I'm sure I'd have a lot of fun doing it. Although I was a little disheartened by the end to see most of it still done by computers. I don't want to be doing it from behind a computer. But I'm sure there's a lot of the other... volume is cool. Sure, I'd, I'd work on the volume, or I don't really know what I'd like to do if I were to do visual effects as a career, but I, I yeah. kind of like, actually, you know, I kind of like the model work. I do find... Modeling like, would be fun. Like Phil, like Lorne, I think it was Lorne who, in the documentary, who's talking about the, or maybe they didn't even talk about this, but I feel like it would be meditative doing... Yeah. No, oh, no, he was talking, it was Phil Tippett who was talking about the creature, the creature work as so meditative. It kind of helped him deal with his bipolar that he didn't know he had. His depression is bipolar, yeah. Helped save his life because it was so calming and consistent in his life. Meanwhile, which, he's making giant monster. <laughs> yeah. Which is, kind of, which is funny when you think about it. The most common thing is making a gigantic monster. Uh, All right, so what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, this... God, this documentary just makes me want to create and just wishes that I had more time to kind of... Wish I could go back in time and be a part of these guys and be a part of this history because they just... It's not... The reason why this documentary should and probably will get all the awards and praise that it ha uh, deserves. It's not... It's not 
the reason why it's so good is not because it's the people who create Star Wars. It's the people who create Indiana Jones. It's, it's the people who created like, everything you love. It's the people who created everything. It's that as well. But the cherry on top, what makes it so good, it's people doing what they love and showing that, it. That. And having them just come up with ideas or, or solving problems that no one in their right mind would have thought about doing. And just because they're only solving this problem because it's doing what they love. Was it stressful at time? Hell yes. Hell yes. They had deadlines. They, it was a business. That's the industrial part of it. What people love to do. They were just creating. And as a filmmaker and people in the film industry, there's nothing we love to do more than create and have people to react what you created to. And these people, ILM, have created the most, some of the most iconic films in history and over the last 50 years. And they will probably... Yeah, it's also a great message just to jump in on you here. But when you're talking about the, the power of creation and something we all like to do, if you look at this documentary, it's very evident that none of this, the magic part of industrial light and magic, the magic can't be created by one person alone. George is the visionary. He came up with a lot of, he came up with his group, these, I, these ideas. He pushed for a lot of things, but George couldn't have done any of this alone. The modeling, the stop motion, the special effects, the cameras, the technology, even the some of the writers, the right, everything that went into ILM, they all had to work as a team. Even when they all moved to digital, everybody had their part on the different computers. Everybody had a part to play. So creation is collaboration. I, I like I'm that quote. I'll stop look there. Up. Yeah. Sorry, I was trying to look up if Ralph McQuarrie is still alive. Oh, I, I don't. I doubt. Theater. I highly doubt it. He looked like I an kept old man. Coming up, Ralph Macchio. Oh, he was born in 1900, so no. <laughs> he looked anyway. like an old man, and or may, I don't know. Who knows, man? But yeah, it's just this is such a beautiful documentary, and I just wish I don't see it on a lot of people. I don't see people praising it right now, and I think they really should. Nobody's talking about it's it. It's really short. Kind of flew under the radar. Six episodes. It's it's six episodes, which is a Disney Plus show <laughs> timeline. Uh huh. Some of the some of the best thing, one of the most beautiful pieces of cinema that I have seen in the past few years because it's just inspirational. And it's just showing years of hard work, dedication, passion, sometimes anger, but just relationships growing over the years. And it's just a beautiful film. And I, th it's one of my favorite documentaries that I've seen. I've also got to say, just for if you're just listening to this podcast and you had no investment in ILM or behind the scenes of film, just as you're listening to us, I watched most of this documentary with my family who have no backgrounds in film whatsoever, and they were loving it just as much as I did. So this documentary That's can hit home for anybody. If you have the least bit of imaginative spark whatsoever, you don't have to be... It's not just a series of in-jokes to people who like film. If, if, you, if you're a fan of just film in general, if you've watched a lot of movies, probably ones by these people... You'll, you'll get something out of this. And uh, it gets the close-up seal of approval, I'd say. Two thumbs up for yeah. Light and Magic. Two thumbs up. Love it.
Let's plug our oh, socials man. and uh, get out of here. Well, you can find me at Ryan Walker Official on Instagram and on TikTok. You can find me on Instagram and on TikTok at Thoughtplane Media and our Patreon page at the same name and Facebook too. Find further film discussion and entertainment reviews on thoughtplane.ca forward slash articles. Also, be sure to leave us comments and reviews as that's a big help. And how about clicking that like button if you enjoyed this? We hope to see you on the next close-up with Ryan and Joe. Till next time. See ya.